What's up, Dune fans? Welcome back to the Dune Not Enter podcast, where today a thin layer of spice brings the ultimate surprise. I'm your host, Humphrey Shu, and joining me are my friends and co hosts, Fillmore John. What's up, guys? And Nolan Zhang. Welcome back, everyone. Indeed, welcome back, everyone. And today we will be covering the first half of chapter 43 of Dune. I'm excited because wow. in this chapter, um, two of our favorite characters meet up once again. Yeah, so for you, Nia. Yep. So uh, before we get into that, um, what happened the past week? Um, any of y'all want to share anything interesting? <laughs> Other than the fact that we met up yesterday. Yeah. So I mean, the yeah. characters have their own meetup. We had our own meetup. So uh, the, our podcast crew, just the three of us, you know, um, had a, had a small meetup yesterday. So it was pretty fun. We don't get to see each other very often, even though we're in the same city. But uh, oh, yeah. But yeah. So I mean. Uh, that was really fun so great experience we got to learn how to learn some gym equipment yeah oh yeah (laughs) yeah we went to the gym before we got kicked out so for some dumb rules (laughs) but um yeah not that we were doing anything (laughs) yeah we we didn't really do anything wrong it's just like oh you have to be a certain age Mm -hmm. okay yeah that's it's kind of a dumb rule but anyways yeah, so anything else uh, y'all like had fun with or anything interesting? Well, it's a three-day weekend, so hopefully that's fun. happens tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I Happy know what's happening. President's Day. Yeah. Woo. yeah George Washington. George Washington. <laughs> yeah, thank you, George Washington, for being born on this day, so I get a three-day weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah only um, real holiday in february duh i know it, it's so funny how our school districts try so hard to make one holiday every month and there's just no valuable holiday in the month of february so that we have to do presents day <laughs> you know I but mean, i mean i'm not complaining it's like but, a leap year yeah yeah that's true but i mean i'm not complaining but after this or oh, next what do they do with the leap year like does does the school schedule like change a bit or do we just i don't know they should totally change like a day earlier like get off maybe i don't know i just I think no we idea. uh yeah we probably get off a day earlier um or maybe we start a day a day later i don't know but um or maybe they um they're just being the school district and uh, never give the students anything so we just <laughs> they it just it's a it's just an extra day of school, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, um, pretty fun stuff. Um, and I'm excited to talk about this chapter. Uh, so Nolan, why don't you take it away with the epigraph? Okay. So this week's epigraph reads: When law and duty are one, united by religion, you never become fully conscious, fully aware of yourself. You're always a little less than an individual. From Muad'Dib, the Ninety Nine Wonders of the Universe by Princess Irulan. So. The first thing that I, like that I like I thought of when I read this chap read this chapter's epigraph was that how similar it was to the last chapter's epigraph because mm-hmm. again this speaks on the topic of religion and the influence it has on Fremen society, and I just really like how it highlights the dangerous effects of when an individual believes their actions are kind of like driven by duty and law, because of like oh I don't know like a re- religious pretext or something like that. So like the effect of it on the person is that. They act not as an individual thinking of their own accord, but rather there's like this overzealous desire to achieve this religious fervor, mm-hmm. right? Like typically it's yeah. like for the benefit of like their community or they think they're justified like on moral grounds or whatever, or on religious grounds, typically on the basis of like life and death in the internal realm, you know? So like mm-hmm. people are pretty fervent, you know? Mm-hmm. So 
they lo- no longer think for themselves. I think that that entire dangerous aspect of religion is exactly why, like, when the self-preservation goes out the window, right? I think exactly why, like, Muad'Dib calls it, like, less than the individual because the individual no longer is themselves. They're, like, not entirely in control anymore. They're coerced by all this cultural and religious context that it's really hard for them to step out of it once you're really deep in it. And we see as in Fremen society, because they're such a religious society, like when you grow up in it, like you can't, it's really hard to break out of the mold. And I think that's what Paul is facing right now. Mm-hmm. So they're no longer thinking for themselves, but for the overall community. Yeah. And I think that like a religious aspect of the Fremen society just makes the whole like, uh, just like the whole jihad much more dangerous because they already prioritize the community over themselves. Like as we right. saw with like the whole water rules, right? Mm-hmm. Like die for us that we don't have to save you with the limited water that we have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Um, and they're you know they're very fanatical too. So it just makes I mean you know when when we came in and we saw the Fremen for the first time, you know it was all about you know the Muad'Dib and how he was the Mahdi and how they would say how he could save them and all of that. So, you know, clearly they they believe in all of these things. And again, like you said, you know, it's just it's all the more dangerous because of that. And it just makes a lot more sense, you know, talking about this community mindedness, because, you know, as we saw with the water of life and all of that, when the Fremen um, are in that kind of communion state, right, they they really don't think for themselves. They're all kind of one entity, which is um, a little bit scary, but it also kind of points to the fact that they lose a little bit of that individualistic ability as they're in that sort of state. So, right. Mm. Yeah. So cool. All right. Really interesting epigraph. And uh, before we dive into the rest of the chapter, um, Fillmore, you have the first quote for a quote section. Okay. My quote this week is enlist. Gurney stared at him. My Lord, I've never left your service. You're the only one left me to think you dead. Mm-hmm. loyal words yeah my quote goes quote they've lost the initiative which means they've lost the war Ooh, yeah when, they, when you lose a purpose then mm-hmm. you're just done for yeah mm-hmm. my quote reads they were your friends gurney i understand to us though they were trespassers who might see things they shouldn't see you must understand that Mm, yeah it's it's this duality you know and uh, something we'll be exploring a lot reality. yeah in this in this <laughs> chapter whole, you must understand that <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's just yeah, well it's just broad honestly you have no choice but to understand that yeah uh-huh. anyway cool all right cool quotes and um Fillmore, why don't you take it away okay so we start off in the point of view of gurney this time and it's been a while since we've last seen him so i'm glad we get some more information on him anyways yeah. This confirms my suspicion from the last episode that the smugglers that Paul saw deep in the desert were related to Gurney. Coincidence? I think not. Definitely not yeah, a coincidence. I, and uh, we'll see I'm later. I'm really happy in this Gurney, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm also scared of what they're going to do to Gurney as, you know, they were planning on doing bad stuff to the smugglers. Yeah, aka slaughter them all. But <laughs> And Gurney's there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could like a fist fight between Paul and Gurney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll have to wait I and guess see. we'll find out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and I also like just how this entire like this entire like chapter was started off with this exposition by Herbert describing the smuggler spice production as like a team effort. So Herbert in his beautiful exposition describes the smuggler spice team as a swarm of insects following its queen. And I think that's just really nice to see because it paints it as more of an organized effort and like less of like well, I characterize smugglers as like a disorganized group of rowdy people, you know, there's like actually structure to their 
group, you know? It's also like a little cool to also witness like the signals of the smugglers use like during their time in the own adopters to convey short commands related to spice production. So I think like it just impressed me that they were that they had some structure and some coherence to their spice production. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite the creative approach, I think, with these ornithopter signals um, to the necessity of not broadcasting radio signals. I wonder, you know, whether our U.S. Air Force does this, something like this. Um, I don't know if you guys know anything about it. Yeah, they, they maybe, you know, or do some specific spins or something like that. I mean, I, don't, I know nothing about flying, but I mean, I know I know the Air Force, I think, uses hand signals. Um, but I mean, yeah. what about, you know, plane signals like these guys used? <laughs> Not only in the air. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. All, I know they do like some sort of maneuvers and such, and they have like these preset, uh-huh. uh, formations that they follow. But yes. the closest thing I can think of, well, it's not going to be in the air, but I know like the people on the ground, they sick, they use those glowing sticks to like signal where oh, the plane should yeah. land and stuff, but. Or flares. Just, yeah. Yeah. That's really the only thing I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah i find it really hard to like believe that like like one of the pilots would just notice the other pilot wiggling their plane like wiggle 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 (laughs) i mean but these the people in the dune world are trained to another level though yeah they have uh so they have so much more you know observation skills than we normal you know humans have right so Uh so they're built different never find out because I have glasses, and that means I can't be a pilot in the in the Air Force. Oh, is that actually? Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Well, you have to wear contacts. That's the end. Okay. I think con- that you need to wear like, enough contacts. Oh, yeah. 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 And those uh, are really expensive. If I, mm-hmm. if I get contacts, I have to get hard ones, and the hard ones like are nasty. I heard. Oh. Oh, the night contacts. contacts. Or like, the... I don't know, like the hard, like the hard ones. Huh. Okay. Well, I have to look into that. Anyways, yeah. So yeah, I've never heard about hard contact. Yeah, I mean, I just always hear about either night, yeah, either night contacts or just you know those thin thin film ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Oh, something else I want to point out in this chapter is just that like, this is probably the first time we're actually ever going to see Gurney's point of view and his thought process because I remember we've gotten to see like Jessica's, Paul's, Lido's, Kai's, the Barons, Fate Routhas. I'm not quite sure if we also got to see Hawats or Stilgar's inside of their head yet. But now we're going to see Gurney's. And for me, like, I was reading it, and the thing that stood out the most to me for Gurney is the usage of, <laughs> I don't know, like, I want—I don't want to say, like, I don't want to, like, undercut his thinking, but, like, for me, when he, like, when I saw his thought process, it just feels like Gurney's mental language seems kind of wishy-washy, almost, like, unsure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, you see him thinking twice, and, like, Herbert conveying, like, this thought process in the ellipses and words, like, unlikely still doubted mm-hmm. yeah at the same time like even though it does show signs of like he's second guessing himself it also shows that gurney's meticulous and careful which isn't like a bad trait to have in a leader that like is in charge of other people's lives. yeah i think right. we've gotten to see gurney's point of view at least once in my recollection right i mean he was i think he was evaluating paul's battle tactics or battle practice after they had their 1v1 and gurney i think was talking about oh, his yeah, his yeah. sister's family member or something right but I mean, but I don't think that Gurney has changed much, though, um, since we last saw him. I mean, he's still a strategizer, and he's weighing the risks, and he knows all the dangers. I mean, he clearly, you know, knows that the Fremen are around, or he, they might be around, yeah. but even though he doesn't manage to avoid them, but at least, you know, he's planning everything. Right. Honestly, I think it's a smart mindset to have, because 
After all, you can never be too careful on a planet full of worms and space invaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I remember when they first were like landing on Iraq, because I think Hawat was also just like, don't underestimate the desert, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, yeah, it's just, you know, things can pop up out of nowhere. It's just, you know, in our world, it's just, generally it's just things pop up from, you know, around you in like a 2D plane, but in their world, you know, they can pop out from like above you, you know, you can get attacked from space or you can get attacked from below by a worm. So it's just all, all six cardinal directions, you know, including, yeah. you know, down and up, I guess. Yeah. Exactly unexpected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, also something that I've always considered when I was reading this chapter and like before, it was just that like, I wonder why the smugglers don't take up a more um, like consistent business plan in a way. Because like Gurney said, the Fremen are willing to trade their spice relatively easily as it is all over their home planet for like other goods that, that, that they deem necessary, right? That they can't produce. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine like the profit margins that smugglers would make if they just like smuggle something more legitimate. You know, they establish like a legitimate business trading water and offered items to Fremen for spice. And maybe like smuggling would have such a high risk of like death and you know lost equipment all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean trading water though just doesn't seem likely to be profitable. Um, I remember something about I don't remember what the term was, but something about how it's you know really bad to to uh, ship water uh, through space yeah, just due to the that. density of water or something like that. Um, and that's why you know it's hard so hard to get water onto Arrakis and. Uh, However, you know, trading these off-world problems, I mean, off-world items, you know, might be, you might be onto something because, you know, something even like Intel, you know, it could be good for business. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine they still do those type of activities for money, except since Spice is still their main source of income because it's still more profitable, prof profitable overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can, I mean, you know, you can't really beat, you know, a few billion solaris, right? <laughs> um yeah. for for just <laughs> a, a thimble full of spice yeah so that's of course they'll still be the most right. profitable but i mean the fremen clearly i mean the fremen pay large sums of spacing guild already you know i don't know if there's spice value deflation or something going on in the universe considering that the rates keep going up to for the spacing guild to keep those um to keep right. those satellites out of uh, rocking skies you know so um yeah but it's overall you know this really interesting economy um happening and you know the smugglers being introduced here too as a kind of an intermediary between the fremen and and the outside world yeah yeah it's just really weird to me that like they're on nobody's side because they're attacked by everyone right the harkonnens are hunting them but they also have to be scared of fremen just because of how their business works you know they're stealing from fremen land and it's just like stop stealing the makers like spice mm -hmm. it's so awkward for them yeah, yeah they're quite they're you know it's even worse for the fremen i mean even worse than the fremen which is you know, quite quite a low bar already yeah they're getting uh -huh. pinched by all sides mm-hmm uh -huh. Oh, also to me, it's just I'm surprised that the smugglers have to, in this instance, maintain radio silence this deep south in the desert. After all, because like, like Gurney and as we saw last chapter, it's just like it's not like the Harkonnens can reach them here, and I don't think the Fremen would look around like heavy radio interceptor equipment on the journey across the sands. But then maybe I'm just like thinking too technically about this, like in the modern world. But either way, I feel like the complete secrecy of the smuggler option does limit their options for spotting threats because they can't do like the spotters anymore because they can't communicate regularly, mm -hmm. which basically like increases the life and death risk of spice production for those like black market words. Like they're taking such a massive risk, and 
I know it's dangerous to have like radios and like emit the signal, but like, come on, like. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's possible. I mean, they're near Fremen's siege. Gurney doesn't really know that. And maybe you know the sieges have more sophisticated sensing equipment. Um, I would assume they do because they need it for protection. Um, and I mean, Gurney, you know, has every right to assume that because he said that this place is a good place tactically to place a base in. You know, it's like covered and everything. There's rock and mm -hmm. and I think Gurney's just taking precautions, right? In this case, although. You know, radio signals may have been a good risk to take, given that there's so little chance of Fremen actually being around here. Um, it's, it's right. yeah. So it's really interesting though how Gurney approaches this whole situation, saying that he quote unquote respects the possibility of Fremen being here. Um, it just shows that the Fremen <laughs> have yeah, the Fremen have proved their worth to Gurney in battle before he even met Paul and knows the source behind all of their new moves, right? Um, so mm -hmm. somehow you know Gurney is already. Uh, he's he already knows basically that the Fremen are are strong warriors, contrary to you know a lot of the other big characters such as the Raban and the Baron, um, who just have no idea, even though they've the seen Baron the needs fight. To take Fremen. some notes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, Hawat's already been telling wonder. him that the Fremen are a lot stronger, but then he uh -huh. still doesn't seem too certain about it. Yeah, I feel like I just wonder like how many battles Gurney has survived against the Fremen because I'm, I'm sure this is not his first spice raid, but then I'm also not sure how like viciously the Fremen defended the other spice raids, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps they just got lucky into... or just yeah. haven't run into Fremen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not pause and... Fremen at least. Yep. Right, and something I wanted to point out is that there's space pirates in this universe, and. That makes yes. me wonder if there's a space version of Somalia. Huh. That yeah. would be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I think this makes a lot of sense considering the Spacing Guild makes so much money off the spice. And if some pirates were able to get their hands on one of the ships, then they would get rich extremely quickly. Yeah. I mean, I just imagine the Spacing Guild would be targeted because, you know, they're, they're transporting everything. It's just, you know, you have like one cargo ship just carrying a truckload of spice, right? And then... And then uh, it just gets intercepted and <laughs> destroyed true. and, you know, just collect all the spice. I mean, that's just so much value there, right? Mm -hmm. I also, like, realized that, okay, like, while Arrakis is a hard plan to live on, it's also, like, the perfect hideout for these space pirates because the same reason why the Caribbean became, like, a hot spot for, like, pirate bases in America is because nobody checked there, you know what I mean? If the spacing guild is getting paid off by the Fremen to not right. put satellites there, then, like, Arrakis is also, like, it's harsh, but it's also like their perfect spot. Other than the fact that the Fremen hate them as well, mm -hmm. it's like it's like parasites. They're leeching off the Fremen's, you know, monetary uh -huh. pay paying to the to the spacing guild. They're just leeching off of that and using that to their advantage. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's a really smart move, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what all they can do, right? So yeah, it's their way of life at yeah. this point. It's a tough life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also wanted to point out that there's also an interesting contrast between kind of like Gurney's still suit description and how he uses it, like compared to the Fremen's. Here it says that like Gurney leaves off his filter mask on his face to allow his voice to travel if he had to shout commands. So obviously like as the leader of the, as the leader of the smugglers, he has to get his voice heard. But it got me wondering because I'm sure that like the Fremen also face similar like high stress situations where, you know, maybe like they have to yell commands as well because, you know, they're like hunting worms, you know, like killing Harkonnens and doing all this stuff at the, like much more hardcore than whatever the smugglers are doing so it's just like how does the fremen hear each other when they don't take off their 
masks you know what i mean because i'm not really particular about that so like mm -hmm. do they just use less auditory commands or do they have their own secret signals and sounds that they create using their body um i think that the fremen are just so well trained and have worked together their whole lives uh that hand signals and body signals and body language should suffice for their communication the smugglers have a they have a way to get water off world you know they can of course they they can travel but the fremen can't really uh so the the fremen probably look for ways to minimize water loss uh, at any cost here you know gurney takes a a little bit of advantage of the situation just to to leave off the filters right but um but the, i don't think that the um fremen would ever do something like that because they they can't get water easily right and not to mention, now that they know the weirding way, we know that the Bene Gesserit have their own ways of communication. So I'm sure that they use some of that as well. So mm -hmm. honestly, I don't think that sort of communication where they actually talk out loud is a problem they face very often. I think also like throughout this chapter, we get um, hints of like signals that they use, kind of like calls that they have. Like it's mm -hmm. a weird sounds, but it's like noticeable, I guess. And this one mean different things. I guess with that regard, as long as they use these sounds, they don't actually need to have the clarity and the intonations that a regular voice command would have i guess mm -hmm. probably right. just like some like frequency of sound or something they, they know because they have really attuned senses to everything i think it was even mentioned you know they could they're they're used to hearing every inflection in like a bird's call or something like that yeah yeah also here we also get an idea of gurney and his perspective on fellow smugglers um he says that some of them are new, and I mean, like, obviously some of them are new. I'm sure some of them died in the last Spice Raid, but he still nevertheless calls them quote-unquote good men. So he hasn't tested all of them yet, but he still has his trust in them, whatever that means. And I'm not sure, like, how is he going to test that test like these men? Like, does he test them based off of loyalty, or is it like a test of ability to gather Spice? Not quite sure how he plans on testing them. But mm -hmm. either way, he still thinks of them as brave fighting men because... In his eyes, you know, like anyone not wearing a shield is must be brave because, you know, a shield provides a lot of comfort in a way against projectile weapons, yet they kind of are forced to not wear the shield because of the worms. And I don't know, he has a, in my opinion, he has a false preconception of what brave fighting men are until he's going to meet the friend. It's going to be like, oh man, there's a whole new level of brave fighting men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think it's just that Gurney's worked with enough smugglers to know that they produce good fighting men. It's probably just a reputation thing among smugglers that, you know, once Gurney's worked with enough of them, he's like, yeah, you know, it's more likely than not that these are good. I mean, just like, I don't know, if you go to some really good university, like, I don't know, Harvard, right? And the employers are more willing to hire. It's just, you know, oh, yeah, they're a Harvard student. And so clearly they must be pretty strong, right? Um, it's more likely than not. So that's why I'm kind of thinking uh, what Gurney is seeing here. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that it was probably the typical honor among thieves type of thing. Mm -hmm. Although that type of trope doesn't really work out very often, but hopefully it works out here. Yeah. yeah, I was just like thinking that like they all have their own rating system. Like, oh man, it must be like three out of five, you know? Like, <laughs> like kind of like um, I'm not sure where this trope is from, but like the idea like you can hire assassins and like mercenaries, and they, like they have like, different ratings of success, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. like John would get would get like a ten out of ten. Yeah, like that's what I mean. Like he's like a ten out of ten. Like he's like a seven out of ten. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, they have a whole you know cast system, well, you know, or a ranking system like that. That would be pretty pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, you can't leave a review on Yelp or anything, but mm -hmm. <laughs> you can still leave a rating.
Yeah. So you can leave a rating on our podcast, five stars only. <laughs> Indeed. <Of course. laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm surprised that the Fremen here, you know, they, they attack, right? And they jump out of the shadows and boom. But, you know, yeah. what, what else jumps out of the shadows is uh, really interesting. They use rockets. Um, of all things where you know where did they get these rockets from at least they're not nuclear right but i mean i thought that these rockets the were left them behind yeah i thought that you know <laughs> rockets would be the bulky and hard to lug around i mean i they're not really close to a siege they're pretty far they're in like a small base far from their primary siege right so i didn't <laughs> know that they had the ability to manufacture rockets or or just like carry transport rockets, them. yeah, or transport them. I mean, honestly, I don't even know how they manufacture them. I didn't know they had the resources and compounded Lamal. Yeah, so that's that's just really interesting. But another thing, you know, my first instinct when I read this, because now I'm starting to think like a fremen, you know, how do I avoid the worms? Isn't this uh -huh. cacophony enough to rouse the worms? I mean, we know that one of the worms is coming uh, towards the end of the section because, of course worms are attuned to anything that happens in the sands but it just surprises uh -huh. me that the the fremen would stomach the risk of multiple worms coming given that they're so careful usually about you know not rousing the worms they have their sand walk and everything right um yeah i don't know it's probably not the smartest idea to use a rocket launcher mm -hmm. especially with all the worms yeah. around <laughs> just imagine but... them with an rpg just going <laughs> off you know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think RPGs are too hard to transport, mm -hmm. in my opinion. But who do I know? I'm not a yeah, I'm not a professional military right. guided yeah. missile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'm, maybe they modified it so it doesn't make as much of a racket. But I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, that would be the smart thing to do. But this book, people do the opposite. Uh, the opposite of smart things. So I'm not sure. And. I mean, I mean, they have the technology. Book, to... What? Like, like in this book, like maybe they do it just to like have a timer because the, they wanted the worm to come and clean up anyways. Maybe they're just ready oh, to die. So to leave no <laughs> trace. Kind of, like not mess up. Yeah. Okay. So they just need to take them out in like the small span of this time and then leave it, leave the worm for cleanup. That's actually kind of yeah, smart. Just a actually. small, just just a small span of time, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then. They also have the technology to create still suits, so I don't see why they wouldn't be able to create a rocket launcher. Yeah, you're right. I think the still suit is probably more uh, sophisticated, right? I mean, uh -huh. yeah, and they don't really have a choice of using uh, rocket launchers because you can't just take down an or ornithopter with Chris knives. You're gonna need some firepower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and... really weird how they're still fighting with like knives, but then they're here using rockets and las guns everything yeah it's just there's this really interesting blend you know of uh past and present right you, i mean we don't fight with knives nowadays or at least generally we don't that's such an 1800s thing you know the bayonets and whatever but uh you know now we just use guns but they don't use guns they use last guns so it's just so guns was like op in the desert though yeah i, I wonder why i wonder why you can't use last guns and in the desert yeah considering yeah. nobody uses a shield I yeah i just thought of that that's really interesting there's no shields and they don't they don't really create like a um they, they don't really create like a vibration for the worms i mean potentially it's a danger issue because they're like bright flashes of light maybe but yeah like it maybe. gives away their location maybe but i think it's just like a minor effect right i mean imagine you have a bunch of solder car coming coming towards you and it's just use last gun or die i mean just use the sure last they gun. know where you are by that point yeah yeah so i don't know maybe last guns are a lot harder to control than we thought 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then now we get to the long-awaited reunion, and Oof. it looks like my <laughs> prediction that Paul would meet Gurney came true. And mm. not ex- what happens here isn't exactly the warmest reunion, but it's a reunion nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm actually quite surprised at the composure that Paul is keeping in this reunion between him and Gurney. Because I noticed that while Gurney is like super shocked and dazed to see Paul alive, and like his men are dying, of course, but like nevertheless, Gurney is still like, oh, Paul is alive. And like Paul here is just like not getting caught up by any of his emotions. He's like, oh, whoa, that's Gurney. And he's like, that's cool. And then he's like, instead, like he remains calm the entire time, still issuing commands to Gurney to like put down your weapons, like tell your men to drop their weapons and stop resisting because it's futile because we're like so cool. It's just like really weird because like he's gauging like, Gurney's current loyalty instead of like immediately jumping, like, dropping everything, and, like rejoicing in the reunion with Gurney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. show of precaution on Paul's part too. It's just it's not even clear that he's stunned, like you said. He's just giving orders and assessing the situation, and only after everything settles down does he fully reunite. And uh, you know, he's just really putting duty over himself and watching out for right. not just himself but also his tribe, making sure that it's still the same Gurney. It's not some. Guy, sorry to cover the face mask. You know, you you never know. Yeah, and I, also I think this shows the skill difference as well because we know that at the beginning uh-huh. of the book they were quite evenly matched in terms of combat ability, but now right. Paul seems clearly has the upper hand, and not to mention Paul is able to keep his anonymity while fighting, which is a lot harder than it sounds. Mm-hmm. That's true. Like Gurney was pretty easy to figure out right away, partly because he had his mask off, but also right. just like. Paul was able to keep his anonymity for a long time until he took his own off, which mm-hmm. is of his own like, choice. Gurney was like, who is this hooded figure? I can't figure out who it is, but he seems very yeah, strong. Gurney's like, he knew mm-hmm. it was cool, but like he didn't know he was that cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just Paul Paul's been he's been he's been bulking, you know, he knows now. Yeah. Um <laughs> who is this roped roped figure? Mm-hmm. Um, also, from Gurney's perspective, while Paul does look like quote unquote a ghost image of Duke Leto Atreides, um, there's also something else that he holds. He st- he also holds onto the hardness within his eyes, kind of similar to the old Duke, which is Paul's grandfather. And additionally, like Paul has you know packed on a bit of muscle. You know, he's got quote unquote a sinewy harsh harshness, and he also has like a calculated look to him that no other Atreides in the past has ever had. Um, I think to me, it just shows that. Paul's grown to fill in the shoes of the leader, like to show to fill in the shoes of Lido and the other people mm-hmm. that have like come to like make this spot open for him, you know, through all their efforts. However, at the same time, he is while he is like his predecessors, he's still adapted to the Fremen community, meaning irrevocably, he kind of had to change in some aspects. And while like the thing is, like Lido was known for some things, aka like kindness, generosity, and like lovingness for the people, Paul mm-hmm. kind of like wasn't always able to adopt all these same qualities that people loved about his father. He had to be mm-hmm. harsher because the friend of life is harsher. So he just like, he's t- he's a little rough around the edges, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think he, Paul's a little more faceted than than Leto. Um, he has he has a lot more to his character, I think. And that's partly because we've got to spend more time with him, but also that he, he represents a lot more than just goodness, right, Paul? Um and I think, I mean, I have a feeling that, you know, he'll represent a lot of bad things later on in this book, um, just due to the way that things are headed, right? But uh, there's he's just a lot more complicated of a character, and that's why he's so fun as a main character, I feel like. Um, yeah, but, I mean, speaking more about Paul, right, it's just, 
you know, talking about the sinewy harshness and, you know, he has this leathery look to the skin, a squint to the eyes and calculation, the glance that seemed to weigh everything in sight. You know, Paul has been hardened by these experiences that no Atreides would ever have dared to experience. And from an old outsider's viewpoint, like Gurney, he's much less recognizable, right? Because keep in mind, Gurney hasn't yeah. experienced Paul's change gradually like we did. So it's quite the shock for him. He's just suddenly meeting this total familiar stranger, right? It's, Really interesting. Yeah, honestly, I first thought the sinewy harshness was a reference to his Mentat side too, because Gurney is unaware of the spice transformation Paul went through. Mm -hmm. But I mean, of course, yeah. the Fremen experience also hardened his muscles and his viewpoints as well. And he's no longer the weak Paul who is just scrabbling over these minor events, such as the Reverend Mother disrespecting him. Now, even Stilgar is telling him that he did a bad job and he's just accepting it like it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what a heartwarming scene here Paul and Gurney embrace each other for the first time in years and their cries of you young pup and Gurney man is enough to make a grown man cry yeah it's yeah, honestly really like all, this moment yeah it's probably the most touching moment in the entire chapter uh huh and probably you know one of the more touching in the book I think mm -hmm. yeah it's almost enough for you to ignore the fact that they killed half of the smugglers which <laughs> is pretty awkward <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah it's just there's a tactical wipeout and then you know oh yeah we're friends but not really because you just not killed really. all, all my friends so yeah. yeah and also if you guys remember in one of the jihads that paul saw gurney was present in it so i'm not really too sure how to yeah. feel about this event because i mean paul says it's a good sign but i'm not entirely convinced yeah yeah you're yeah. right but maybe you know one of those futures is just you know it's still possible but just Gurney being there lessens the chances less, of it a lot. So, like, right. Maybe, yeah. Like, there's more options, I guess. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Uh -huh. Also, like, Gurney comments on the fact that Paul is, like, the reason behind why the Fremen grows ever so more tactful in their fighting style. How many, like, of the decisions that they made, like, Gurney would made the very same decisions too. Like, it's really crazy. I think, like, an entire sense of the chapter is referenced in the very beginning, like foresighted throughout the entire chapter with Gurney saying things like, oh, well, this rich like, provides surprising shielding and cover like from the elements and from everything else. And it's like, it also make a great place for like an emergency base, you know, like the entire time I was reading this, I was like, wow, Gurney is like scoping out this place and like thinking it's pretty cool. And then boom, there's actually a res like there's actually residents there, you know, the Fremen already lived there, but like, you're too late. Mm -hmm. I think it like also really shows that Paul is in a way putting the very skills that gurney taught him as a mentor all those years ago to like to like use you know he like to to practice like and like now he's like surprising the master and very himself at his own game yeah honestly it's good to see that gurney taught the basics well to paul because it's really good to have a uh -huh. hard base on which your foundation is built upon and now that he's able to use these skills he he's able to explain it to others and that's what's making the fremen much stronger and we know that Paul is sort of an instinctual fighter because he's a genius and he's able to just understand these topics instantly, but he's still able to explain all these uh, methods to the Fremen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, there, there's just so much uh, that, that Paul knows that comes from Gurney. So, I mean, everything that Paul knows comes from Gurney. So it's just all, you know, it just, it just makes a lot of sense that Gurney would recognize his own, you know, his own style. Fighting style. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. among the Fremen. 
Yeah, so, I mean, speaking of foreshadowing, there's a little bit more here. Uh, it goes, quote, Finding his former swordsmaster filled him with elation. He saw it as a good omen, a sign that he was on the course of the future where all was well. So, I mean, we already kind of discussed it, but, I mean, I just can't help but hope that, you know, there's a little more hope than we would have thought. Um, but knowing yeah. Herbert as a writer, you'll just crush it all, right? So, can't can't really expect too much. But, um, yeah, I feel like I'm being set up, but, you know, I... I'm going in blind, so I can't, you know, I can't stop myself no from from I can't stop myself from hoping that there's a little bit more to the puzzle. Yep, I keep it's hoping. Like, it's, hoping. Like the, mm-hmm. uh, it's like the higher you go, the the further you drop. Right. So now we also catch a glimpse of Paul's elation of being reunited. But at the same time, while he was really happy for a second. He was kind of dampened by the reminder of his inevitable scuffle with Stilgar waiting to happen. Uh, I think it's also noted that when Stilgar addressed Paul, he addressed Paul as like his duke or like Gurney's duke, you know, like so like he's actually instead of referring to Paul as Muad'Dib or like um, the Lisa Al Gabe or whatever. I remember last chapter, like Stilgar had a discussion where like I know who Muad'Dib is. I know like because he fought by my side, but I don't. You know who I don't know? Like I don't know who didn't. Who Duke? Who the Duke is, or like who Paul is, or like all these other people that came from the off world, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think like the slight intonation in his voice when he said his Duke, I think it just kind of reveals that like there's some type of shift in the way that Stilgar views this interaction between this like reunion between the two. I think like I think it definitely changes. How Paul like stands among the Fremen, especially in this power struggle, because now he has much more options on hopefully how to avoid this terrible power, like this terrible purpose and the battle to the death between him and Stilgar. Hopefully it's for the better instead of for the worse. But Stilgar is definitely worried of the fact that he just met up with the old friend. Yeah, I think the way he said Duke was a negative connotation, because as the book said, Stilgar would have much rather spoke his mind, but clearly Stilgar's hiding something else that's troubling him. And I mean, we kind of know what it is, right? It's this impending fight. But I wonder whether there's anything else. Is Stilgar maybe just preemptively giving Paul the title of Duke symbolically as he believes that Paul will be the quote-unquote Duke of the Fremen soon, almost ironically? Um, Or is there something else there that we don't really know about? Uh, Yeah, I don't think this is the best look for Stilgar, but I suppose he has the right to be skeptical concerning his life is on the line. Mm -hmm. But Uh honestly, I think Paul is sort of like, I th- he's probably going to be the king of the Fremen. He'll be the one to unite yeah. them all. He'll be the chief of the tribes. I, I don't really know how to how else to describe it, but yeah. this is how Stilgar is the current leader of the Fremen, of, or of their specific group. Paul will be the leader of all the Fremen, of all yeah. 8 million of them, or or so. We're not sure what the total population is, but he'll, he'll be the one. Yeah, and yeah. he'll be the one they'll band behind if uh, they go on the jihad. So right. that that's uh, not a good look either. So honestly, Stilgar has every right here to you know be a little bit miffed, that to be a little bit suspicious of Paul, even though they, they have a lot of mutual respect. Um, he's within his rights to kind of not know where that's going, and even Paul doesn't know, so. Right. Oh, well. Uh, something else that we see is that Paul does ask Gurney where the other Trades men are, because if I remember correctly, Gurney was with a small group of men before they got separated. Um, and Gurney was able to tell Paul that the other Trades men are spread out among, like, 
Dural Arrakis among like the free traders, whatever that means. I don't know what like free traders mean because I wouldn't trade anything for free. But um, otherwise, like these like former tradesmen have taken off after gathering like a fortune, so they went off world. Um, it brings up the question of like, is there a way for a fremen to leave the planet permanently? Because I remember we discussed this before. Um, we our initial theory was that no, the people are tied to the planet because of the spice. So like we said, once you have like the blue eyes of the fremen, it's too late for you to turn back because spice is addictive, you know. So you need a constant supply of spice to stay alive. But from this vantage point, we do know that some people were able to break that. Well, no, maybe we don't know if they broke it or not. Like they, we don't know if they broke the addiction, but it is possible to go off planet and leave the planet permanently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, perhaps the Atreides weren't as exposed to the spice because, I mean, if you gathered a fortune, it's probable that they can just buy enough spice to sustain themselves, even if they're elsewhere in the universe, right? And but definitely spice would kill you because Paul said at one point, you know, spice was, quote, a poison so subtle, so insidious, so irreversible. It won't even kill you unless you stop taking it. Um, it's like like any other drug, really. Um, right. You don't feel it until you, know, you try to wean off of it and bam, the withdrawal symptoms hit. And, you know, in the case of spice, the withdrawal symptoms are literally death. So, um, yeah. I mean, the men may have just gathered enough spice to keep themselves alive, too, right? So um, they, they maybe just carry that wherever they go. Who knows? Yeah, I'm sure that they have their ways to get their hand, hands on more spice since they were able to gather a fortune. And to gather a fortune, you need connections. Mm -hmm. That is true. Like, they have the skills and they have probably connections to get more spice. And we'll just co it'll cost them a bit, but, like, they'll figure it out, I guess. Yeah. yeah or maybe they're remotely running their business, so... They don't have to actually be <laughs> yeah. there, but they reap all the benefits. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'd be cool. Like a smuggler chain. Or a remote yeah. spice harvester. Yeah. You just like push push <laughs> the, the button and it just oh. brings you spice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the virtual worker. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so here we get to my quote today where it's like, they were your friends, Gurney. I understand. To us, though, they were trespassers who might see things that they shouldn't see. You must understand that. So this is um, after the whole fight between the smugglers and the Fremen with the Fremen obviously coming out on top. And this is where like a lot of them are wounded or injured or dead. And now the worm is coming. And then Gurney's like, oh no, we must save all the other people that are wounded, right? And Paul is just like, psych, we're not saving them because they're too much to carry, you know? Like, it's too much for them. Um, I think to me, this quote is really impactful because it reveals the basic fact is like, as an individual, we can't care about everybody. I know it's going to be shocking to some of the listeners, but, like, I can't care for everyone in this world who has struggles, you know? Like, we have to have an allegiance to certain communities that we relate to before other people. In Paul's case, he chose the Fremen because he's the leader of the Fremen, so he has a responsibility to the Fremen people first and foremost instead of, like, the smugglers that he doesn't know. Yes, like, others might judge you for it. Like, Gurney kind of judges him for it because it's just, like, you know, like, your father would have done something different. You know, your father right. would have cared more for the people that were going to die. However, I also think that like Paul's attitude to not waste resources on others outside his tribe is built on the ideals of the desert. You know, like he's lived through the experience the Fremen way taught him the true way. Like that's the way of survival, you know, like there's limited resources to go around and therefore he has a pretty clear image of who he wants to give the resources to. And like for others, like, well, like, for the people that he doesn't care about, you know, like he just doesn't want to waste his resources on them, you know, like he doesn't want to trouble his mind about saving people that he doesn't care about. Mm -hmm. I think that at the, at the end of the day, it's a rough way to see the world is really black and white, but the same way, like for many people, this is a reality, you know, like 
Yeah. You can't save everyone. So you just mm-hmm. got to focus on the people they do care about. Yeah, it's the necessity of war. You can't always be perfectly utilitarian, putting everyone's priority over everyone else's. That's a contradiction in and of itself. And at some point, there has to be priorities. And I think Paul made the right move as a Fremen to eliminate any threats that could be posed to himself and his tribe. Um, yeah. So I think that's the correct decision because, you know, he can't satisfy everybody. Mm-hmm. Especially oh. in the desert, it's really never about taking chances, but being certain that you will always be on top after a conflict. And we've known that yeah. from, from a previous chapter that it's sort of the Fremen's mindset to always come out on top, to always make, I guess, sort of a profit in a way. But when if we yeah. lose two men, they, use, they, they lose five, sort of that type of thing. And it's uh-huh. unfortunate that the men killed during this conflict, or it's unfortunate for the men that were killed during this conflict. And I'm sure that the more conflict will flow from it, but hopefully they'll learn to put aside their differences because they could be valuable resources for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this type of attitude is exactly what Gurney's feeling. He's experiencing a bit of a, I don't know if the, what the proper term is, but I'm going to just call it a cultural shock, I think, because Paul keeps using this inclusive words like us, we, you know, like they, and like all of us together. And Gurney's just like, really? When did you become one of them? You know, like you're, you're not like the old Duke anymore. Like you're not relate with the trainees now. Like you left us, you know? Huh. So like betrayal one one yeah like there's just kind of a distrust towards what the book calls the touch of the spice brush or like it describes those people who have gone to quote-unquote native right like those who have blended in the fremen too well that they get the eyes of the embod you know but the thing is i don't quite see particularly why there's anything wrong with that because like yeah like sure the fremen are different and yeah they do have a harsher way of living because of the harsher environment they live in and therefore everything's more black and white for them but like why is gurney struggling to come to terms with paul's conversion to the fremen you know like he should be in fact exuberant that paul succeeded in fulfilling his father's dreams of desert power and now he has desert power you know like he's the leader of the faded kid he just mm-hmm. showed like gurney what desert power is like he, he shredded them you know like in half a cup like it was just a couple seconds his entire fighting force was like halved yeah I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just really weird to see that there, there's this, as you said, there's this culture shock. So, I mean, it's just, there's so much of a gap between the last time Paul and Gurney saw each other versus now. And um, there's just so much that Paul has adapted to from a culture that Gurney still needs to understand. Yeah. I mean, to be fair to him, it's been almost three years since he's seen Paul. So we should True. definitely cut him some slack. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that long because I mean, because there was that major time skip. So we don't right, feel right. like it was that long, but it really was that long. Wow, now that you say that. And not to mention, he thought Paul was dead the entire time, so he never really would have expected him to become such a integral part of the Fremen. And I'm sure he'll mm-hmm. get to that, get used to the idea eventually, but for now, we can't really expect him to change his mindset so quickly. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, it's it, it's it takes a little while to adapt. And you know, even us as readers who have no skin in the game, took quite a while to adapt to all these Fremen, Fremen traditions right. and we still haven't Way, learned all yeah. of them. Yeah. And you know, it, Paul and Paul of course tried his best to, to adapt as fast as possible because he's in that situation. So he needs to, right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was just, wondering yeah. like, it was Idaho who was when they were first sent by the Duke to like, Idaho was the one that first integrated into Fremen society. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then he, he was the one that actually met okay. Stilgar. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, now we have, so, we see Stilgar I mean, here a few possible, hundred pages yeah. later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've also hit my quote for the week. Uh, Paul and Gurney are discussing the grab and sink and pan villages. So when Gurney reveals that they've hunkered down in their villages like they're under siege, Paul quips, quote, they've lost the initiative, which means they've lost the war. I don't know. It just it's kind of like that other quote where it's, you know, you know, I won the battle but lost the war or something like that. But in this case it's oh, yeah. that they've lost the initiative, um, which means they've lost the war. And I, I really like this quote because it's almost something you can attribute to Sun Tzu's art of war. Um, it almost feels like it's yes. something that comes out of that. It's just really short and sweet and to the point. And, um, you know, but it, it just has a lot of truth to it uh, because you can't just sit around waiting for the enemy to come to you. And waiting, you'll wear yourself out and become less vigilant. And also, if your village were to be under siege, you'd get destroyed. You know, there's so many sieges. I don't think, you know, the defendants rarely ever win in a siege just like staying there and trying to wear off the attackers because the attackers get a constant supply of resources, right? And, right. and you don't. Um, and... Once you give up this advantage and you stop attacking, you'll only subject yourself to attack. And you know, wars aren't really won on defense. So it's just, there's a lot of truth to this quote. It's a little nice bow strategy. And kind of also to remember in, in your own life, just you know, always be moving and hunting for new opportunities. Because the instant you become lax, it'll be hard to get out of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's Have a actually quote for it, right? war. Uh, I haven't ever read it actually. I, I was planning to at some point, but you know, never really got around to it. Yeah, I've never read about it either. Oh, and I, but I think I, I've heard of I it. I did like, read it. Oh, you oh, read really? it? Okay. Yeah, because I found it at like the library. Like the they were selling the book, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's a Sun Tzu's Art of War, and I bought it on discount. I, I heard it's just good for real life lessons too. You know, not just mm-hmm. not just you know, of course, because all the most of the battle tactics are obsolete, right? But all of the <laughs> lessons aren't. Yeah, so, but basically, I mean, like, this even lesson li- was just... well, they're even important to this day. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's something to just something that's good to read, just as a life lesson book, I guess. Mm-hmm. I actually yeah. do remember this lesson from the book. Basically, like it was just Sun Tzu was saying because um, it was a time when fortified cities started coming out in China. You know, so like they were uh... facing enemies in fortified cities, and he was just right. saying that like yes, let like let them like sit in their cities in behind their defenses. But like the plan was that you have to go and ravage the countryside and you have to draw out the defenders. He's basically said to actually ignore the cities, which is basically what the Mongols did. You know, they ignored the, the, the fortified cities because they knew that they couldn't win the siege long term. So they have enough soldiers or resources to hold it for many, many years. Rather, they worked on like destroying the countryside, provoking fear and like just trying to draw out the defenders in the fact that like if they don't come, then the surrounding countryside will suffer for it, and therefore, like, it'll cause instability within the region. So it'll eventually lose trust in the government, and they'll just be like, it'll be irreparable, whatever is caused, you know? Right. You know what era, era, yeah, what era Sun Tzu was born in, or like what era he wrote his book? Oh, let me search it up. It's, it's, it's sometime AD. It's, it's, I feel right. like it's not... like maybe the feudal period, or maybe oh, before no, that it's... even. 512 BCE. It was during the oh. spring and autumn period. I know that. Okay. Uh, okay. I actually love the spring and autumn period. I actually first heard about the spring and autumn period when I went over to this like really old Chinese woman's house and like I read this book about the spring and autumn period. I was like, what is this? Mm. But that was crazy. I love the spring wow. and autumn period of China. You guys are more educated in Chinese culture than I am. So uh, no, but I, I, I don't really know much about the spring and autumn period. Is it? Is it the feudal period or is it like? Uh, it's the warring periods of China. Yeah, so it's it basically is. Okay. Like, yeah. When okay. there's like hundreds it's one of, of them. different. There's, 
there's many different ones yeah yeah okay okay interesting i'll have to so go there's learn a three my... kingdoms period as well you know uh-huh. right oh uh, isn't that three kingdoms after the after on the spring autumn period the what it was i think it was like spring and autumn period was like there's like hundreds all across china and then they were unified under three kingdoms and then they unified them under like the Qin dynasty was the first emperor uh-huh. and then they went on to the dynasties it was a pretty oh, messy was it period th- i know i thought the three dynasties were after the Qin dynasty no but like the three kingdoms were like they were like different factions that controlled china it was like the wu Oh, let me see. I've searched up. So China was divided between Kalwei, Suha, the Eastern Wu. So like it's like the three kingdoms was like okay. It was preceded by the Eastern Han dynasty. Oh, so it is. Yeah. And then like oh, so it is Western after the Jin dynasty, dynasty, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah. I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> it is I quite complicated. I, I remember I thought the Qin dynasty was formed after the seven warring states. Yeah, oh, I'm, not, I'm not a professional in Chinese history. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel bad because I have no idea what you guys are talking about when I took the AP Chinese language and culture exam. So, no, uh, I don't feel it's like because not, recently that's... I've been reading like a book on Chinese history and I thought it was like really interesting. Uh, okay, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I need to go back and learn everything. Yeah, historians were just like China's history, just remember like this there's always a rebellion and someone's always falling. Okay, <laughs> that's so, like, true. Yeah, China's. It's the, it's one of the most convoluted, you know, histories. Why not just America? We fought one war, we're now in America. That's it. Yeah, well, so. I mean, we won a couple, like yeah. Battle of 1812 and stuff. Well, I, I mean, yeah, like, um, like we didn't have, like, break apart and, like, come back together oh, and, like, break right, apart right. and come back together. Yeah, and now we join together to become America, you know. It's like, yeah, we've had one civil war, I guess. Yeah, true, true, true. That, that, that's true. Uh, but, I mean, that was pretty straightforward. It's just north and south. It's not, like crazy yeah, kingdom no, no yeah. not like north south east west northwest southwest <laughs> yeah. yeah that would yeah. be pretty chaotic yeah all the directions mm-hmm. that's crazy and moving on from there now we get to my quote for this week which i'll repeat quickly enlist gurney steradin my lord i've never left your service you're the only one left me to think you dead Duh. i don't know why but i found this scene to be strangely comical because it feels like yeah. a slight banter between men that already know the answer to a question. Because before yeah. this, Paul asks, oh, are you going to join my service again? And then he's like, Gurney's like, oh, I've never left your service. You're the one who left me, actually. Uh-huh. So I don't know. But obviously, they didn't. They never really abandoned each other. They just got split apart. And yeah. I really liked how it reestablishes that, the dynamic between Paul and Gurney after all this time they've been apart. And in a good way too yeah because they were really close before and they were very open to bantering and i mean even you know right after your quote it keeps going and i being cast adrift made what shrift i could waiting for the moment i might sell my life for what it's worth the death of raban so it's just really (laughs) it's idealistic in a comical way so it's really funny i think um there's just this you know you can't read it without like an amusement the tone of amusement It's just one of those things that you say for the formality of it, but at the same time, it's just like because because you're not that like the relationship doesn't have to be that formal. You're just like joking about it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and here, ooh, we get to see Chani actually interrupt this touching moment between Gurney and Paul. So, Chani step into the scene now, and unsurprisingly, Gurney also has some pretty perceptive skills of his own, and like he's able to see like the human body language and correctly deduces that. Shawnee is actually Paul's significant other. So with this in mind, he actually isn't too surprised when Paul kind of mentions that 
he has an heir. Like he has Leto the third, the third. No, no, I have no clue what Leto is. He is all, but he has a son. You know, that's been born. That's born by Chani among the Fremen. Right. And the thing is, like, I, I'm hoping that like the earlier prejudice prejudice that Gurney showed towards like people who grew up too native doesn't carry over to the next Duke because. You know, like I want him to be open-minded and serve loyally. You know, I want him to be like open-minded to Fremen culture and just be able to like take care of the new Duke as he did to all the other Dukes before him. Well, I mean, he he's gonna take good care of the new Duke. I mean, he is related. He is Paul's son after all. That's and true. The thing is, Tony isn't even completely Fremen herself, right? Yeah. I mean, she's half, half. Fremen. Half, oh. Yeah. So kind. isn't Paul's son technically only like a fourth native? Yeah. So I guess we can't really call him completely native. Well, He's actually three-fourths mm-hmm. Spacian. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Cal- Cal- Caladinian? Well, not even really. Because, well, I guess only only half Caladinian, right, from Paul. And then right. like a quarter. Oh, outer world, yeah. Yeah, outer world. Yeah, outer world. Yeah. Outer worldling, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. Yeah, something um, like that. Yeah, so. He's E.T. Just kidding. <laughs> Interesting. He's an alien. Yeah, he's extra. Wait, that just sounds wrong. Never mind. <laughs> Wait, yeah, shit. Anyways, yeah. So, um, yeah. So way, way, uh, way to go for Shawnee to uh, ruin the moment. But um, you know, we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh... Always the wives. Gosh, guys, it's the bro <laughs> moments that count. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but on that note, I believe that concludes the discussion for this episode of the Do Not Enter podcast. Make sure to read to the end of chapter 43 and tune in next time when we discuss it. As always, thanks to all of you listeners for being patient with us and being interested in our thoughts. Follow us on Instagram at do not enter, Reddit, you slash do not enter, Twitter at do not enter, and email us at do not enter at gmail.com. That is D U N E N O T E N T E R at gmail.com. Uh, please contact us with questions, feedback, or I dare say. C- 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 okay. Um, can't, 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 I'm just stuttering on the word, so I can't can't really read that word. You know, can't can't really yeah, English right now. Um, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify. It only takes a few seconds of your time, so of course you have to go make an account and then uh, search up our show and uh, click the five star button because it's the only one that exists. And also leave a nice comment or two if you're able. Um, it just really lets us know that we're doing a good job and uh, motivates us to keep creating content. But also it helps to get our podcast up the charts so we can. Uh, get Dune out to a wider variety of listeners that would be really great Um, otherwise have a great week and we will see you all back very soon see you guys bye guys